take out your Bible and turn over to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, as we look together at a blessing and a curse. Genesis chapter 9, thank you. We've been going through chapter by chapter pretty much the last several weeks, and I know there's just a lot of information in there that we could spend a lot of time on. But I'm tempted to jump off in, but I'm going to control myself and not get into all those details. But I encourage you to study more as we talk today about the rainbow, capital punishment, the curse of Ham, and all these things. It provides for great, great Bible study. And I think, Ann, you probably cover some of these in some of your um, materials as well. But today we're going to look at a blessing and a curse. I invite you to take out your outline in Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. There were two little girls. Jessica was five. Stephanie was three. And they were having a conversation with their mom around the dinner table about Sunday school lesson. And the three-year-old Stephanie turned to her mom and said, did God really make rainbows? And the mom said, sure he did, just like the Bible says. And Jessica, the five-year-old, leans into her sister and says, yeah, and God has some big crayons. Some big crayons to create those rainbows. Well, as we talk about rainbows today, a blessing and a curse, at the end of the chapter, we'll see the legacy of Ham and the legacy of Shem and Japheth, three of Noah's sons, and how they contrast their lives as they carry on the legacy of Noah and his wife. The first thing we see this morning in Genesis chapter 9 on your outline is the command to multiply. The command to multiply. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 21, we saw how God provided what was needed to sustain life on the ark. He provided food. He provided uh, the water that they needed. And if you go to the ark ark, uh, encounter, you'll see they figure out a system of way, how they could have collected water to provide water and how to remove waste. And all these things were taken care of and God sustained their life on the ark. But now God's beginning the world anew. He continues to provide for man and the animals in the post-flood era. Now, life after the ark, God gives mankind a second chance, a do-over of sorts by providing their needs going forward. Look at verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. First thing we see there under this main point is the dominion of man over animals. Just a reminder. God says the same thing to Noah that he did to Adam when he created Adam. He says that 
in verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. God is reestablishing some principles he shared with Adam that mankind would have dominion over the animal kingdom once again. Second of all, very important, the diet. The diet changed for man. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, they were just eating a plant-based diet, but now God says it's okay to eat meat. Look at verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. We hear a lot in our culture about plant-based diets. The Impossible Whopper, right, at Burger King or whatever. Um, We see a lot of emphasis on that. And then as I read in my Farm Bureau publication, the importance of meat because we're here in Iowa as well. So we need to have a balance of those things. Eating too much meat to the extreme can even be healthy over time. Finding that balance of meat and vegetables is something we're all hopefully working on. So there was a diet change. Thirdly, we see the directive that the blood represents life. The directive that the blood represents life. In verse 4 of chapter 9, it says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You know, it's kind of strange as I studied for this whole sermon all week long, and now this morning I wake up and I see a little phrase that I don't even know what it means. So maybe you can do a study with me, but every beast, I will require it. Does that mean that God's going to require the beast to kill another beast of their blood? I don't know what that means, but it's very clear what it means here about what man and their responsibility to other human beings Man is commanded not to eat meat that hasn't had the blood drained out of it. God is saying in these verses that blood is the symbol of life. The priests were later given permission to have sacrifices and even be able to eat the meat of some of the sacrifices, but the blood had to be on the altar first. It had to be drained from the animals in atonement for sins. In Hebrews 9.22, you're familiar with, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's God's way of blotting out and taking away sin is blood of the animals. And eventually, the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. He goes on to say in Leviticus 17 about blood, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So the blood had to be drained out first before eating the meat. And as we know, God takes life very seriously. And blood is the symbol of life. And so God says it has to be taken care of. The blood sacrifices were important and had to be done just right to please God and to get the sacrifice or provide the offering that God wanted. 
But Jesus was that final sacrifice for our sins with his shed blood on the cross. Now, verse 6 has been hotly debated even to this very hour, uh, uh, this particular verse about capital punishment. You know, this may be the first thought of human government, the inference of it, at least in the Bible. It says that if someone, in verse 6, premeditates the murder of another human being, the murderer's life must be taken in retribution for the blood that was shed. Some say it's a weak argument to say that this is an inference to the government. We don't know for sure. Others say this is a precursor to God establishing governments to govern people, as we'll see in Genesis 10, the Tower of Babel, and supported by Romans 13. The government with its authorities, its magistrates, and leaders are the ones to carry out capital, capital punishment, not the vengeful family of the victim who was killed. Take your Bible, turn over to Romans 13. Romans 13. Paul's writing this while Nero is the emperor. And Nero hated the Christians. And Nero was one of the worst emperors in the way that he persecuted Christians. He was ruthless. He would take Christians and dip them in wax and put them on a pole and put them in his garden and light them on fire at night to light his garden. Just for an example of how ruthless he was. And I want you to think about that as we read these verses because Paul is penning these while Nero is persecuting the Christians. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's the responsibility of the government to provide safety for its people and protection, support those who do things well and right, but also to bring uh, punishment, whether that be arresting someone and taking them to trial or even to the point of capital punishment. It is the government's authority to do that. So killing another human being, God reminded, meant that you were killing someone made in the very image of God. He says that in verse 6, referencing back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The idea here is that God is restating that every human being, despite their having a sinful nature, has value and importance in this world. Murdering someone should require the life of the one who murdered. There was a man named Carlos and... Uh, Back in Venezuela, when there was a lot of uh, civil war and unrest, um, a lot of strange things happened, but Carlos was killed in a car accident. He was considered dead at the scene of the accident. So they took him to the morgue, and they asked that an autopsy be taken of Carlos. And so they began the procedure, and as they began to cut into him, they realized that he still had blood in his body. So quickly, the coroner got sutures, and without anesthesia, he's suturing up this body, and all of a sudden, Carlos wakes up. He wasn't dead after all. The blood was still in him, and the life was still there. And it was hard for them to believe that Carlos resuscitated because of the pain 
that was inflicted by putting in those stitches. And a few moments later, his wife arrived at the morgue to identify his body to see him alive in the hallway. Can you imagine? <laughs> Dead men do not bleed. And that's the important thing. So Genesis 9-7, it says here, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God sticks this thought in there that reiterates what God commanded Adam and Eve to do after they were created. We hear the dangers of overpopulating the world by some scientists. There was a study done in October of 1999, so that's 21, roughly 21 years ago. Scientists said the whole world's population could fit in the state of Texas. And they began to do the calculations. Texas has 262,000 square miles. And the current UN estimate in October of 1999 was 6 billion. So they figured it out that one really finds that there's more than 1,217 square feet per person. That means a family of five could occupy more than 6,085 square feet of living space. And even in Texas, that's a mansion. And so when you think about this whole idea of God saying multiply and spread the population over the earth, and we hear people say we could be overpopulated, God is sovereign, God's in control, and he uh, knows what he's doing. So the application here is let's remember how important and precious the blood is that represents life. Look at it from God's perspective, how important the blood is for life itself, but also for the atonement of our sins, the removal of our sins because of the blood of Jesus. Second, we see God make a very important promise to mankind. We see the covenant with man not to destroy the world again by water. The covenant with man not to destroy the world again by water. We see, first of all, the description of the covenant. Verse 8 of chapter 9, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God establishes a promise, a contract, a commitment to the animals, and to Noah and his family. And it includes us as well as it's passed down from generation to generation. There will never, ever be a universal flood on the earth leading to the destruction of mankind. We've seen the hurricanes pummel Alabama, New Orleans, and, and, and Mississippi in that area. And we've seen the damage even within this last week of what a flood can do. 30 inches of rain in some places. And can you imagine what that would look like if it was all over the world? But God says regional floods, yes, but no universal flood anymore. Now, this does not mean that God will not bring about a final judgment on earth. We've referred to in several sermons this passage in 2 Peter 3, but I want to put it on the screen because we haven't really talked about it. It says in 2 Peter 3, waiting for, Peter says, and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, 
and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The one thing we take away is this world is not eternal. It has an expiration date. We're to do our part to conserve. It's great to build dams and do projects of conservation. We need to be recycling. We need to not litter. We need to improve air quality and not, improve, and not pollute as much as possible. It's interesting. They've done studies during COVID-19 when a lot of manufacturing around the world has uh, been shut down for a period of time that hasn't decreased the mean temperature whatsoever. That's been interesting to see. But God promises not to use water to destroy the earth. The next time, it will be by fire. And he'll either burn off this earth or dissolve this earth completely and rebuild a new one, a new heaven, a new earth. And those who are believers in Christ will be with him to reign and rule forever and ever in eternity on the new heaven and the new earth. Well, the flood accomplished God's purpose by bringing judgment to the world, but it didn't take away man's sinful nature. No amount of environmental resetting can cure the fact that the world is headed for destruction. In Genesis 8.21, it says man's heart's intentions are evil from their youth up, pointing back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve first sinned. God makes his promise in chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, just like the promise God made to Noah about taking care of them through the time that they were in the ark in chapter 6, verse 19. So we see next the creative design of the covenant. Not only what the covenant is, but the sign of it, the rainbow. Look at verses 12 through 17. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sign here is not just for Noah's generation and even several generations, but it flows all the way down to us as we get the evidence from time to time, a rainbow in our skies. He's making a commitment. In verse 13, we see that God will place a bow, or we call it a rainbow, in the sky as a reminder that he will keep his word concerning the water judgment. No more universal flood. What does that word bow mean? Well, it's a Hebrew term, and it means that the battle is over. The bow represents a sword, that the swords are to be put away, and there's going to be peace from now on. God's saying about the wrath of the whole entire world. Israel will eventually put their swords away when Jesus returns and sets up his rule and reign in New Jerusalem during his 1,000-year reign. Isaiah 2.4, I heard that this is inscribed at the United Nations building in New York. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This will only happen after Jesus returns and drives out evil and ends war once and forever. Well, it's true, it's possible that this rainbow may have appeared even before uh, this event. But now, whether it appeared before or not, we don't know. But now he's saying, when you see it, this is a covenant reminder. Signs are reminders to a person that God will honor the stipulations of his contract. This is a sign that God will be a physical peace with man for a set time. So three things we can learn from the rainbow. First of all, it's the reminder that we won't have a universal flood. But second of all, and I think this is so amazing, it's the intersection of God and science, the supernatural and the natural. You know, we can look at science and they explain how the, you know, the uh, particles of water and how it refracts with the light and all these things, and that's great. But it's also so showing us that God is involved in our history by providing us a picture that we can point to as a reminder. And thirdly, it's a link to future covenants of God with man. It's a link. The Abrahamic covenants in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 15, circumcision that God commanded Abraham to begin with the Israelite males in Genesis 17, the signs of the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 31, Baptism, Jesus saying, you know, representing, uh, doing baptism as an example that we are to do that in remembrance of sin, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. These are future signs, covenants. And so our application here is we see the rainbows in the sky. May we be mindful of God's faithfulness to keep all of his promises. When you see that rainbow the next time, just remember that God is faithful and keeping his promises. He's the ultimate promise keeper. Now we move from the blessing that God talks about for most of this chapter, and we look at what has been called the curse of Ham. The curse of Ham. I'm sure I'll get some emails for this part of the message, and I welcome them, because there's a lot of different ways to interpret, or some how people interpret these these verses, but let's look at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Those three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. The first thing we see is the patriarchs of the renewed race. The patriarchs, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're going to be the ones who create the descendants all the way down to us in this uh, post flood era. Shem's descendants would become the nation of Israel through Abraham. He would be one of Shem's descendants. Ham would become the father of the Canaanite nation, which would oppose Israel and live a very worldly, wicked life. Among Muslim historians, Japheth is usually regarded as the ancestor of Gog and Magog, which in modern times right now would be like Russia and that part of the world. But also, Japheth may be the father of the Turks, the Khazars, and the Slavs as well. Notice in verse 19, we see the first use of that word dispersed. We'll see it again when we get to the Tower of Babel. It means the world is going to be divided geopolitically and by different language groups. Now, you and I, we don't know how much time has elapsed since 
Noah and his family came off the ark with the animals, but we do know there's been a period of time because now he has a grandson named Canaan. Noah's grandson was named Canaan. So that leads us to the problem with Ham and Noah. Look at verses 20 through 24. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And we'll pause that verse right there. One thing we keep mentioning for emphasis is that the flood did not take away man's sinful nature. You would think that after a generation or two of the worldwide flood that, you know, maybe they would have thought about, you know, what caused that? We don't want that to ever happen again, right? And already they are forgetting about that. They're becoming very, very wicked once again. It just reminds me that 75 years ago, we found out about the Holocaust. And yet, 75 years later, we hear people say that that was a hoax. We have people that are uh, becoming more and more anti-Semitic against the Jews once again. How quickly we forget or we choose to forget what happens and why it happens in the past. In verses 20 through 27, here of chapter 9, you see a parallel between these verses and the first creation story. You see the planting of a specially cultivated area, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. But you see now, Noah is a man of the soil and he plants a vineyard. We see, second of all, the partaking of the fruit, that they're commanded to eat of the fruit of the land. And now, Noah is producing wine in Genesis 3, 6 and here in chapter 9. And what was the result of that? Nakedness. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, and so we see Noah drunk and naked as well. See the parallels. And the nakedness had to be covered. God provided animal skins to cover them, and here the two brothers, the two sons, come in and cover their father. And then the pronouncement of a curse against Canaan, just like the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3. So in this narrative, we see the first major act of depravity after the flood. Ham went in and saw his father's nakedness. And the way the commentators read, he came out and was bragging to his brothers about what he had seen. In Habakkuk 2.15, it says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. In their culture, it was a disgrace and a dishonor to see one of your parents naked. And the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, means more than Ham going in and seeing his father naked. Based on the Hebrew text here, it appears that something physically inappropriate occurred between Canaan and Noah. Look what it says in verse 24, the youngest son... Canaan, um, Ham was the middle son. Back in that culture, they would sometimes call their grandchildren son or daughter. 
So the youngest son here is speaking of Canaan, of Ham's son. Some say that it could have been one of three things that happened. We're not sure, but it could have been some say that Ham slept with his mother while Noah was naked, but we have no evidence or proof of that. Or Ham or Canaan could have castrated Noah. The Bible doesn't record Noah having any more children after this incident. But most likely, and what most commentators believe, is that the youngest grandson, Canaan, carried out some kind of perverse homosexual act on his grandfather. And the sad part was that Ham may have been aware of what happened. And so Shem and Japheth go backward with a covering because they can't look on their father's nakedness, and they cover him in verse 23. In verse 24, Noah awakens from his drunken stupor and realizes something has happened. And then we see the curse Noah puts on Canaan, his grandson. Some say verses 24 through 27 really are telling you about the future of Israel's foreign policy, of how things would shake out in the years to come. Look at verse 25, if you would, of Genesis 9. Noah said, curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. We see this is the third of three curses found in the book of Genesis. We see the curse of the serpent. Remember, at the consequence of the serpent deceiving Eve, God pronounced a curse upon the serpent. He would always be on the belly, on his belly, crawling around until the end of time. The curse of Cain for killing his brother Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And now we see the curse of Canaan. Now Canaan became the father of what is known as the Canaanites, who were sexually deviant people. They were the ones that God calls, caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Joshua conquered the Canaanites as they took Israelites into the promised land, and uh, the Canaanites became their slaves. We see that the sins of Canaan were passed down to future generations. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, it says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, the misinterpretation of the curse of Ham's grandson has led to some horrific teaching and preaching by Christian pastors and teachers of yesteryear and even to this day. The thought of this curse of Ham and what pastors have said is that Ham was cursed, so his descendants were black-skinned and became the African people. And because of this curse, they were deemed inferior and condemned to a life of slavery from, for coming generations. This is where Christians in other countries and even at the beginning of our country justified slavery, the curse of Ham, as it's called from a Christian perspective. It's erroneous teaching, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, but this is what justified in many ways the Southerners seceding from the Union, supported by what they believe was a scriptural reason to have slavery, and it led us into the Civil War. As Aaron Barfels, one of our elders, and myself, we've been doing a lot of study about this ethnic unrest and the issues with Black Lives Matter. And here's four principles. We'll, we'll probably talk about this more at some point, but here's some principles, some simple things just to remember as we deal with this 
issue of ethnic unrest in our country. And you might want to write these down. First of all, all men and women are created equal and made in the image of God. That's unequivocal. Equivocal. That's across the board. All men are created equal and made in the image of God. Second of all, we are all one race. A year ago, we had a wonderful VBS called The Incredible Race, if I remember the right name of the title. And so we talked about how we all are coming from Adam and Eve. We're all one human race. But there's diverse ethnicities. Thirdly, the cross and the gospel in Ephesians 2 is the only hope, is the only hope for reconciliation between ethnicities. And sometime we'll unpack these in a sermon to give you more detail. But the cross is the only thing ultimately that's going to bring peace. And just remember, there's not going to be peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace comes back and sets up his rule and reign in this life. And fourthly, we have to accept diversity of cultures and ethnicity as God's creative work among his special creation. We should welcome people to worship in different ways, in different styles, from different parts of the world. Because that's what makes the beauty of God's creative work amazing. He's made us all different and diverse. And we could say much more about it. Well, it's interesting that Ham is not mentioned in the curse, but it's possible he was guilty because he did not oversee his son and allow what happened between Canaan and Noah. And so, in a backhanded way, as he cursed Canaan, he might have been giving a mild rebuke to Ham as well. Noah's words elevate his first son, Shem, who would be Canaan's subsequent master. This shows there'll be strife among these siblings. Japheth, who's the youngest son, is giving a blessing that his descendants will populate much of the land and prosper. Notice the words enlargement. Notice the word dwell in tents. They're going to have a wide span of wealth and land and be very prosperous. In Genesis 9, 28 through 29, as we finish this chapter, it says, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah was a hero in the Bible. But like many, as he got older, he gave in to the temptations of Satan, and he had a blemish or a scar on his life that we remember. That's what's amazing about the Bible. If you know anything about historians who wrote back in the time of the Old Testament and New Testament, leaders would hire people to do their biographies, but they would leave out all the bad stuff. They only wanted you to hear the good stuff. And what does God do? He puts humanity in the word of God. So we can learn from it. And I hope we do. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It begs the question for you and I, what kind of legacy will we leave behind? As we close today, you might have heard this story before, but there was an American educator named A.E. Winship. And he decided to trace the descendants of the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, 150 years after his death. He compared them to a prisoner in jail, Max Jukes, who lived about that same time as Jonathan Edwards. And we see the legacy that each one of these lives left over the span of a number of generations. Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one vice president, one dean of a law school, 
one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. The one who did the study said much of this capacity and talent and intensity of character of more than the 1,400 of Edwards' family is due to Mrs. Edwards, despite the fact that Jonathan Edwards was an amazing preacher, he was intelligent, he was a good, hardworking, moral person. Most of the credit goes to his wife. Now, Max Jukes' legacy came to people's attention when the family tree of 42 different men in the New York state prison system were traced back to him. He lived in New York about the same period as Edwards'. Duke's descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. And here's the application as we think about this chapter, chapter 9 of Noah. These contrasting legacies provide an example of what some call the five-generation rule, how a parent raises their child, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment, the spiritual, eternal values they pour into them, the education influences not only their children, but four generations to come afterward, either for good or evil. What a challenging thought. If someone were to study your family tree and look back, what would they see? Or what if we wait 150 years and see what your descendants are like? How will you determine the legacy that you will leave? How will you pour into those that are your family, your extended family, your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids? So our application is this, is the sins of man can affect their future descendants. And that's what we see in Noah. We see that with Ishmael because... Abraham ran ahead of God's will and Ishmael came about. The sins of man can affect their future descendants. We learn on our journey as God loves us through our humanity that God blesses man at times and disciplines man all by love. That God blesses man at times, as we see the first part of this chapter, but he also disciplines. And it's always done the blessing and the discipline in love to make us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter. A lot of places we could go and go in more in depth, but Lord, we just thank you as we look at this chapter, we see that you do bring about blessing for obedience. We thank you for Noah and how righteous he was but yet was susceptible to temptation just like any one of us in this room are. So we pray today that you help us, help us in our lives to continue to put on the armor of God, to be covered and protected by your blood as believers in Christ, that when the temptation comes, that we'll look for the way of escape. The Lord will think about the decisions we make and how they will affect those in our family our kids, our grandkids, and how it will affect our legacy in the future. Lord, we just pray that you will 
help us to think about our legacy and what we should be doing even this week to build even more, to be intentional, to pour into the lives around us and maybe those that still need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they would make that decision because the time is short and the ark door will be closing on this time that we live in as judgment will occur at some point. And may we sense the urgency around us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.